Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 30. It's another one of David's psalms. And this time we're given a particular context for that psalm, as it says in the superscription, one that we will give some attention to this evening. <coughs> psalm chapter 30. I'm going to read from the New American Standard version this evening. To Psalm. A song at the dedication of the house. A psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. You have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor, You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning for me into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, so that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. The Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. It's rather interesting how this particular psalm opens up with this uh, um, superscription that, uh, that uh, tells us the context for this particular psalm. And I decided to read from a, a different translation this evening to, to bring uh, something out uh, and maybe highlight One of the things that comes along when we study our Bibles. Every translation has to make particular um, choices in how it translates certain words. And it brings certain things out and certain things to bear. And if you notice, for those of you who have the ESV, it reads, that superscript reads something like this, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And yet you see here in the New American Standard, it's a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. For those of you who uh, use the King James, it is a psalm of David, a song uh, at the dedication of the house of David. So which is it? Now, I think all of these translations are trying to do justice to this particular thing, but how we take this particular superscript helps us to understand the particular context. Is it regarding the dedication of the temple, or is it regarding the dedication of the house of David? You know, if we put it quite literally, that grammatically it's rather curious. It's a kind of quite literally a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house 
of David. And that's why the New American Standard has it uh, at the end, a psalm of David. So is, is the of David talking about this being a psalm of David, or is it talking about being the house of David? And I know I'm, I'm throwing all these questions out here at once, but this is what happens when we read our Bibles, isn't it? Uh, especially when we start trend, uh, comparing different translations, trying to make sense of what it is that's going on. For those of you who know your Bible history, uh, you might be scratching your head thinking, David writing a psalm for the dedication of the temple? Because if you recall, it is not David who dedicated the temple. It was Solomon. In fact, when you read 1 Chronicles 21 and 22, David is in fact forbidden from building the temple on account of all the blood that he had shed. Nevertheless, David was allowed to make preparations for the temple. We'll consider some of those circumstances uh, in a little bit. But I think what we see here before we begin is if you look at verse 6, I think we're given a hint into the broader context for what's going on so we can situate this psalm so we can understand what it is that David is getting at. I think verse 6 stands out like a sore thumb in many ways. I have a friend who introduced me to a <coughs> excuse me, a um, musical group about a year or so ago that takes uh, uh, the psalms and simply puts it to music as a way to, to teach kids to memorize the psalms. It's a band called The Corner Room. And uh, about a year ago, I started listening to one of my favorite uh, musical renditions. I ended up being uh, one of their versions of Psalm 30. And I've, I've listened for the past year, and Psalm 6 has always stuck out to me for the, this past year. And now as I, this week, coming to uh, preach it, thinking, you know, what is David doing when he talks about, I shall never be moved? Is this a cry of faith? Or is this a cry of presumption? Is it David's boast in his own prosperity? And certainly that seems to be the case. As you see here in verse 6 where he says, As for me, I have said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. And what is the Lord's response? You hid your face. And I was dismayed. For those of you familiar with uh, the circumstances at the end of David's life and the foundation of the temple, you remember what happened. David, towards the end of his life, as he's on the verge of defeating, having defeated all of his enemies, he looks about him, and he decides to take a census of the nation of Israel, and even his general, Joab, who's not the most trustworthy man, yet Joab says, this is, this is a bad move, David. Don't do this. Why would you invite that wrath of the Lord? The chronicler says, nevertheless, uh, the will of the king prevailed. David has a census. He takes a census. And he sees all the numbers of the armed men. One and a half million armed men. And it says, the Scripture says it invites the Lord's wrath. And the Lord appears to David. And in the Lord's fury, He strikes down 70,000 Israelites by a plague. And of course, that plague is averted by atonement as David purchases the threshing floor atop Mount Moriah and consecrates a new place for the ark to come to rest. And that, I think, is the context that we have for this particular psalm this evening. It helps us to grasp the context of David's praise and why it is that he is extolling the Lord. So he gives thanks to God not 
for his own boasted accomplishments, but for the Lord's mercy and grace. Two things I'd like us to consider this, my, this evening. First, the matter of joy in verses 1-5, to five, and secondly, the matter of gladness in verses 6-12. to 12. So joy and gladness. This particular psalm opens up with a personal uh, cry of thanksgiving. David gives a, 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 a double uh, a praise of thanksgiving, as it were, for both his deliverance externally and internally. He praises God for having delivered him from all of his enemies and for having delivered him, having healed him by delivering him from the grave. In Hebrew, he says, you've drawn me up, the idea of being drawn up from a a deep well or cistern. Uh, For those of you who remember uh, the news headlines, this would have been, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, just about, baby Jessica, Midland, Texas in the late 80s. A little 18-month girl who fell 22 feet down a well and was trapped in that well uh, for well over 50 hours. It's the imagery here that the Lord has delivered David from this deep well. Verse 2, you have healed me, but that healing is described in terms of a virtual resurrection, if you will. A lifting up from the grave, that of life from the dead. Here David gives personal testimony to the way in which the Lord had delivered him from certain death. And David's personal testimony now gives way to a corporate call to worship here in verses 4 and 5. For just as the Lord has delivered his king, so now David cries out and calls out to the saints and says that the same mercy that has been granted to me is for all who fear him. Praise the Lord, all you his saints, all those who are the recipients of his covenant faithfulness. The Lord will show that same faithfulness to his saints as he has shown David. Here, David recognizes this is not simply uh, the deliverance of the innocent, the sinless. This is speaking of the Lord's mercy in the face of deep sin. Though wrath may last for him a moment, there is life to be found in his pleasure. As the Lord comes and delivers those, though they have sinned against him, he will show his favor to those who trust in him. There's a contrast here between his anger and his favor. It's something we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, even as the Lord reveals his name to Moses at the heights of Sinai, we are told this that the Lord's anger, his fury, extends to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, to thousands of those who keep his commandments. Here, the same idea persists. His anger is fleeting. His favor lasts a lifetime. It is the Lord's disposition, naturally, as it were, to show mercy. Grief might be an unexpected and intrusive guest, but it will not become a permanent resident. Here David speaks of the Lord's anger, but it is one that is not bent towards our destruction. The one bent towards our very correction. We are reminded of 
Proverbs 3 and reiterated in Hebrews where the Scriptures say, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one that He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. You know, even the Lord's anger against His people is not the burning, consuming wrath that we see that the Lord meets out against the wicked. Rather, it is one of a father showing disciplining his sons and daughters in love. And so, David here is speaking from a deeply personal experience. As the Lord has delivered him, so now David speaks and says, praise the Lord to his saints, because his favor lasts a lifetime. What an encouragement it is when we are being disciplined and chastened by the Lord. This is not how it ends. The night might be long, but joy does come in the morning. And then in verses 6-12, to David once again returns to this personal experience as he kind of begins to tease out this particular situation. That experience where in his pride he took stock in Israel's numbers and he invited the chastening anger of the Lord. As we Read of that account in 1 Chronicles 21 and 22. It begins by saying that it was Satan who incited David to number Israel. And even David's chief commander said, this is a bad idea. Why should this become a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab says. Yet David's wish prevails against wise counsel. A million and a half people are men, he counts. His enemies have been defeated. He is at peace. And in his pride, he says, in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. David here speaks of his mountain, a picture of his kingdom. He begins to think that his dynasty has in some way been founded on his own strength rather than on God's gracious promise. And so the Lord responds with tough love. I remember once when I was a kid, I um, got in trouble. I don't remember the particular thing that I did, but I'm pretty certain I deserved it. Uh, And I remember my mom saying, I think my dad was on a business trip that week. And so my mom called my dad, and my dad called, uh, talked, you know, had me get on the phone with him. And he said, All right, son, you've got two choices. You can either take a spanking now or no television for a week. I didn't like either choice. What's option number three? He said, no, you get to pick. You're a big boy. Well, that's what we see here. The Lord says to David, you've got three options because of what you've done. You can have three years of famine, three months of loss on the battlefield at the hands of your foes, three days of plague. And David says, I'm at your mercy. You decide. And so the Lord says, the plague it is. The Scriptures tell us that the angel of the Lord brandishes his sword against the people of Israel and begins barreling his way towards Jerusalem. For three days, 70,000 men are struck down among the Israelites, and as the angel of the Lord is making his way to Jerusalem, 
he stops at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David intercedes, pleading for mercy. David looks at the death, everything that is happening, and it is all at his hands. He is the one responsible as the representative of the people of God. This is his sin that has impacted the people. He prays that the Lord would stay his hand. He says, please, Lord, it is I who have done this. Do not do this. Do not let the sword fall on the others. And so the Lord commands his angel to sheathe his sword. The angel of the Lord commands David to purchase the land and to build an altar there that the temple or that the ark uh, might come to rest there. At this point in time, the ark was residing in Gibeon. David, of course, pays full price for the threshing floor, this space to lay the foundation for what would become the temple, a house which his son Solomon will see brought to completion. Here we see the very thing that David is describing in this psalm. Because of David's pride, in, as he says, as he looks around in his prosperity and all that the Lord had granted him, David says, ah, oh, I will never be moved. He has ceased trusting in the Lord and had begun to trust in his own military might. The strength of numbers. And so the Lord hid his face. We're reminded of what the Scriptures teach us and how it's described and summarized to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, that there are times when the Lord withdraws His face and permits us to suffer, to rouse us from carnal slumber before it is too late. David says, O Lord, You hid Your face, and I was dismayed. One of my favorite hymns, uh, it's not in our Trinity hymnal, it's in um, the new Psalter hymnal, but it's an old hymn by John Newton, where John Newton considers these very things, where he says that I ask the Lord that I might grow in every grace, and in response to my prayer, the Lord made me to feel the hidden evils of my heart. With his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my every woe. And so I asked, Lord, why? Why would you employ these inward trials upon me? I've prayed for grace, and I, all I feel is further wrath, further displeasure. And the Lord responds, as it were, as we hear in Newton's hymn, these inward trials I employ to set thee free from self and pride. To break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. David learns what it means to be a man broken by his own sin, and it leads him to pray properly. David looks around him, and he sees the situation. And as he sees the wrath and fury of the Lord barreling its way quite literally towards Jerusalem, David asks, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? David recognizes he has nothing of his own merits to stand upon as he is confronted with the holiness of the living God. 
David realized the only thing that he can boast in is the mercy of God and God's own covenant promises. And so it is on that basis that he pleads, O Lord, be merciful to me. And it is here where the tide turns. A reversal of fortune. Now David knows why his mountain has been made to stand strong. That it was not by his own power. It was not by the strength of his numbers. The reason his house, his dynasty had been established as we are reminded in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was on the basis of God's own promise. The Lord comes to David and says, I will establish your house. I will make your name great. And it's not on the basis of David's stature, on the basis of his own power, on his own wealth. It is on the free and abundant and gratuitous mercy of God alone. David's dirge has now been turned into a dance. Instead of a funeral, again, I want you to think as he speaks of the sackcloth and ashes and the funeral rites of mourning that he speaks of here, I want you to picture that scene as 70,000 are struck dead in just a matter of days by plague. David says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. Even as death was barreling its way towards his house, the Lord stays his hand and delivers him from the grave. There's a great exchange that transpires. The funeral garb of sackcloth is now exchanged for one of gladness and joy for a particular purpose, because the dead cannot sing God's praise. And so David lives that he might attest to the covenant mercy of his God. Because David here learns that his house, his dynasty, is founded on grace. And that his status as a son, even in his old age, rests not in his own good works, but on God's mercy. We see this reversal take place as kind of brought out more pointedly, I think, in the Hebrew. In verse 6, there's David's presumption, where translation is very fine translation says, I will not be moved. Quite literally, I shall not be moved unto everlasting. Where David is confident in his own strength. There is nothing that will move my position of security. David's presumption in verse 6 in light of the Lord's fury gives way to David's praise in verse 12 where David says, I will give thanks to you unto everlasting. I will give thanks to you forever. David recognizes that his house, his lineage, his dynasty is founded on God's gratuitous promise. Here we have in the psalm a picture of death and resurrection. Promised not only to Israel's kings, we see in the first three verses, but all to all who trust in him. It is one founded on God's gratuitous promise. Praise the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord's anger is but a moment. What comfort that is to sinners that we serve a God who does not hold our sins against us. 
Here is a promise of life that is granted to His people and is granted not on the basis of our own works, but on God's free mercy given to us in Christ. What a comfort this is for us even in our old age as mature believers. How many of us are perennially tempted to think that we are saved by grace, but somehow kept in by our own good works? Let Psalm 30 be a reminder and a rejoinder against that. That it is holy of grace. It is all of grace. The only reason the Lord accepts us today is the same reason He accepted us when we first trusted in Christ. It is because of the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. How many of us are tempted by thinking that we enter into the kingdom by first trusting in Christ, but somehow our success and growth is accomplished by our own moral striving? And how easy it is for us to look around and see uh, all the personal victories that we've accomplished, as it were, over sin and think, ah, finally, I've reached it as a believer. How easy it is to grow self-assured and self-confident to see those milestone victories over personal and major and besetting sins. Though we are called to wage war against indwelling sin, our status before the throne of grace is not ever contingent upon the success of our strivings. David learned this the hard way. May we be reminded of his example that it might sober us up that we might not fall into the same presumption as Him. Our Father disciplines us as sons because we are sons. We are made sons by His grace. His discipline may last the night, and His discipline, though painful for a time, will not forever last. Here stands the promise of joy that will supersede the sorrow, for He is the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with our sins as they deserve. Nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are but dust. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider Your Word, David's own presumption and Your own discipline and mercy towards Him, we pray that You would correct us. That we would recognize that any spiritual victories we have attained do not grant us um, a greater or more secure standing with You. Because our surety, our right standing with You is already secure. Because of the righteousness of Christ. That Christ is alone our hope 
in our righteousness. We pray that You would train us to boast in nothing but the cross of Christ and His righteousness imputed to us, that through it we might rest confident with joy and with gladness the great victory You have secured for us through Christ our Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.